1: Tonight on The Readout.
2: He said, um, we, have, we have
3: to kill the narrative that the vice president is making all the decisions. Uh, we need to establish the narrative that, um, you know, that the president is still in charge and that things are steady or stable or what's that thing. Joint
1: Chiefs Chairman Mark Milley, in his interview with the January 6th committee, talking about comments made to him by Mark Meadows. Now General Milley is the target of deranged threats from Donald Trump, who scarily enough could become president again. What that would look like. Steve Schmidt joins me in a moment to discuss. Also tonight, the uniquely disgraceful defendant, how Trump's actions are forcing judges to take extraordinary measures to preserve, to preserve the justice system and protect the lives of jurors. Plus, Rupert Murdoch says he's retiring, but he's leaving behind a trail of destruction. Author Michael Wolff writes about it in his new book, and he joins me tonight right here in studio. But we begin tonight with the former president of the United States, who keeps reminding us who he is and what he would do to this country if he were to return to the White House. Today, while in South Carolina, the prolific Liars campaign lied again after Trump talked about buying a gun. That's a Glock.
0: Um, Glock, Glock actually did that. And uh, these, these are actually great sellers. We sell them.
4: With the picture?
0: We do. It comes exactly like this from Glock. Wow. Um,
4: and
5: they sell well. Yes,
6: sir. They,
1: sell
5: they like, well. They like you. I gotta buy one. one. Buy
1: one. Buy one. <laughs> 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 I wanna buy one. Ha ha ha. His campaign informed the media that he had, in fact, purchased the gun. Which is technically illegal given his felony indictments. But I guess they only pursue those crimes if your name starts with Hunter and ends with Biden. About an hour later, the Trump campaign informed the media that he actually, in fact, did not buy a gun. No surprise there, because lying is Donald Trump's safe space. He does it all the time. He's even been indicted and sued for it, lying about returning classified documents, lying about the election being stolen, lying about E. Jean Carroll. I could go on and on and on. Well, now Trump, the habitual liar, is set to address a handful of MAGA union workers later this week, claiming that he's always had union workers' backs. And when he says that at his address, he'll be lying again, because his administration did the exact opposite of supporting union workers when he was president. The Trump administration made it harder for small unions to organize, weakened bargaining rights, and stripped protections against anti-union measures. Those are the actual facts. Meanwhile, Joe Biden, the most outspoken pro-union president in modern American history, will be hitting the picket lines tomorrow in Detroit, and we'll have coverage of that on tomorrow's show. Trump, who earlier today told supporters that Jeb Bush, who was Florida governor, not president of the United States, started the Iraq war. Yeah, he's not only a liar, he is clearly unwell. He spent the weekend firing off unhinged rants, essentially calling for the execution of outgoing Joint Chiefs Chairman and General Mark Milley. On his pretend Twitter, the four times impeached, civilly liable for sexually abused septuagenarian wrote that General Milley's phone call to reassure China in the aftermath of the storming of the Capitol was an act so egregious that in times gone by, the punishment would have been death. Adding... To be continued. For the record, that call was explicitly authorized by Trump administration officials. But, but but just stop and think about that for a moment. The former president of the United States openly suggested that a decorated U.S. general should maybe be killed for making a phone call to protect this country from its mad president. In a healthy democracy, what Trump did, let alone what he did on January 6, 2021, would end any future claim that he had on the presidency. Instead, today, one of Trump's allies and January 6th co-collaborators, Congressman Paul Gosar of Arizona, not only echoed those calls, but made them even more explicit. In his weekly newsletter, Gosar wrote that in a better society, quizlings like the strange sodomy-promoting General Milley would be hung. Here's the major problem for the majority of us living in this country. These calls are not innocent words made in a vacuum. We have already seen what can happen when Trump speaks. And all you have to do is watch video from the assault on our Capitol. As The Atlantic points out, academics have a formal term for exactly this type of incitement, stochastic terrorism. An influential figure with a large following demonizes a person or a group of people. The likelihood is strong that some small number of followers will take those words literally. These are incredibly dangerous incitements to violence. And Trump didn't stop there. He continued his deranged rants, calling NBC and specifically this network, MSNBC, an enemy of the people worthy of investigation and prosecution for treason. Now, the rest of the media can lead with questions about Biden's age. But don't you think that it's a little more consequential to ask the American people if they support threats of violence against an army general? and calls to retaliate against the media, maybe violently. Sadly, this country has become so numb towards Trump and his party's openly authoritarian threats that he doesn't even have to hide what he wants to do in a second term. Aside from his threats against General Milley and those who work at this network, Trump has plans to bomb Mexico, an act of war, by the way, plus firing hundreds of thousands of career civil servants who refuse to do whatever he wants, Herding homeless people into camps, cutting funding to schools that teach critical race theory and gender ideology, which isn't actually a thing in public schools, reinstate a Muslim ban while expanding the ban to include, quote, communists, Marxists, and socialists. Watch out France, the Netherlands, Italy, Italy, and Germany, all countries that have socialist political parties. He would also ban funds for transgender care. And send national troops to major cities to essentially implement martial law. Oh, and defund the FBI. And that doesn't even include his desire to permanently stay in power. And his plans to nationalize a ban on abortion access. America, is this what you really want? And if that's not clear enough, do you really believe that we should be rewarding a Republican party that is bringing this country to its economic knees with a possible government shutdown just because Trump told them to? And because they don't want to help feed the poor or lower the cost of prescription drugs or support the fight for democracy in Ukraine, do you really think that we should reward people who are paid to govern, but who refuse to do their jobs? Trump seems to think so. He's telling Republicans to shut down the government unless they get, quote, everything, including, of course, impeaching Joe Biden for whatever they think of today. And the very real threat of a shutdown amid that threat, Republicans found time to hold a hearing on that this week, Biden. Perfect. Joining me now is Steve Schmidt, former Republican strategist and founder of The Warning newsletter, podcast and YouTube channel. It is great to have you back, Steve. I don't even know where to begin. So I am just going to let you respond to that, because the thing is, is that Donald Trump is being very open about what a second Trump term, which would be a permanent, apparently, Trump term would entail. What do you make of the fact that it does seem to me that the country and in many cases the media seems numb to it?
2: I think there's no question that the country and the media is numb to it. The threshold in this moment is very simple. Everything that Donald Trump says should be taken literally and seriously. What he did today was threaten the employees, the journalists at NBC News. What he said more broadly is he's going to shut down the free media in the United States. What he announced today as a candidate for president in 2023 is he's coming after the American media. He's coming after his political opponents. Why is he running for president? He's running for retribution. Retribution, according to Donald Trump, is a philosophy of avenging anybody who was against him. So we are on the edge of an abyss in this country, and it seems that there is a paralysis, a numbness, a total disregard for the clear and present threat. There is something extraordinary happening. The people who are trying to tear down democracy in the country keep telling the rest of the country what it is they plan to do to such a degree that they have announced their plans six months into 2025, to have taken apart the whole of the federal government. Now, since FDR's time in office, the legislative metric in the United States has been hundred days, not six months. This is a racist code whistle to every white supremacist in the country because it's how long it took out off Hitler to take Weimar Germany to a complete and total dictatorship. That included, by the way, the military swearing an oath of allegiance, not to the nation, but to the Fuhrer. And the military was the institution amongst many in Germany that were the last holdouts to this. But once he was in power, they were the first to submit. And what Donald Trump is signaling to the officer corps of the American military, you get in line behind me, the leader, not the idea, not the Constitution, or I'm coming for you, too. This is an epically dangerous moment.
1: Well, and, and to make that even more explicit, he has essentially threatened General Mark Milley with death. And he has signaled to his MAGA fanatic fan base that this man deserves to die. This is a hero military United States general uh, that was the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And he explicitly issued a threat against him because he knows there will be no recourse and that his followers have no problem with that. But his party has no problem with it. Where is the condemnation from the Republican Party for Donald Trump issuing a written threat against General Milley, I've heard nothing but silence.
2: Total silence, as there has been total silence about the threats, about the intimations towards violence that we've seen play out over many years. There will be a moment where these intimations and threats trigger actual real violence. There are strong arguments to be made that it has already. We know for certain that radicalized individuals have acted. We know for certain, having watched with our own eyes on January 6th, how the incitements translate to violence. But it seems to me that there is something growing, growling, menacing out there, and it is not being confronted. Now, I do want to say this. The Democratic Party in its entirety, must condemn Senator Robert Menendez, roll him up in a carpet, and proverbially throw him over the side of the deck. Because corruption accrues to Donald Trump's benefit. Chaos accrues to Donald Trump's benefit. If the race is about, well, both sides are corrupt, even if it's a false equivalence, it accrues to Trump's benefit. The only way out of this, The only way through this is an appeal to better. So the country has been in a profound crisis before. It is a feature of democracies that they awaken late to threats. Winston Churchill talked about the gathering storm. He talked about the second world war as the unnecessary war, but what is coming is nearing. And when you have a former president so unhinged today, threatening a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or current chairman about to retire with death, threatening journalists with shutdown and violence, and threatening to imprison political opponents, it has to be taken seriously. When you have the entirety of a political party that remains silent, they are complicit with it. I mean, we are at the hour that John Kennedy warned about when he said, beware the foolish men who seek power by trying to ride the back of the tiger only to wind up inside it. That's where we are. And so this moment requires a ability to communicate the threat, but also optimistically, where are we going as we move away from this? But nobody should be confused at all about how close we are to the edge of the abyss in this country. Judging from Donald Trump's words, he means it.
1: Well, he means it and his party means it as well. I mean, DeSantis, who's considered sure for a while was supposed to be the al- one of the alternatives, is saying that they're going to start, quote, slitting throats if he becomes a president uh, from day one. You have Ramaswamy promising to pardon Trump and to implement many of the same authoritarian principles, rob people under 25 of their right to vote, reinstitute what he's calling a civics test, meaning some sort of, I guess, bubbles in a bar of soap or whatever it is he thinks he wants to go back to. But I want to talk about, like, how this. Happens, And by the way, we are going to have the opponent, the Democratic opponent, uh, named opponent to uh, Senator Menendez on later in the show, because I think you're right about him. How this happens, Steve, is not is not a one on one necessarily between Biden and Trump. Trump has already proven he's a loser. He's a multiple times loser when he and his, you know, his, his versions of him run in the last couple of years elections. Robert F. Kennedy, Jr., has had now conversations with the Libertarian Party about maybe, maybe, maybe leaving the Democratic primary and trying to run as a Libertarian. You've got all of these third party candidates out there floating around, Cornell West. him. The way this could happen is that you have four people on the ballot and you do have a critical mass of Americans who either through boredom or disinterest in democracy don't want to reelect a normal president. They want an outre president. How concerned are you that these third-party potential candidates, some of them conspiracy theorists, et cetera, like Mr. Kennedy, could actually put Trump back in office?
2: Well, at at the end of the day, there's a reality about American democracy, which is this, is if you're constitutionally qualified and over 35 years of old and you want to run for office, you can run for office. And the Democratic Party is an institution, doesn't get a vote on it the Republican Party doesn't get a vote on it. Life isn't fair. Political campaigns aren't fair. Some people get to run downhill. Other people have to way, run way uphill. And here's the deal, right? If there's three candidates on the ballot, five candidates on the ballot, Cornell West is on the ballot, Joe Manchin is on the ballot. Joe Biden must be able to put together a strategy that assembles 270 electoral votes now what it does at a at a basic level is it expands the electoral map and that means you go to places that haven't seen candidates bigger race more complicated but you have to win the game as it's presented to yeah. you and that's the challenge for the Democrats and and the president on this
1: indeed indeed oh, we're gonna have to keep talking about this uh Steve Schmidt always valuable to have your voice on this show so please come back thank you very much thank you Cheers. And up next on The Readout, Defendant Trump and the unique risks that 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 entails for his attorneys, the U.S. justice system, and for our democracy. The Readout continues after this.
5: Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood,
1: Earlier this evening, there was a big development in the Georgia election case. Fulton County Judge Scott McAfee ruled that no information about the jurors for the racketeering case against Donald Trump and his 18 co-defendants will be made public. Audio recording will be allowed in only two instances, when the foreperson reads the verdict and when the foreperson reads jury questions to the judge. That means defendants, reporters, and observers will be prohibited from recording, recording, photographing, or identifying jurors in any way that might reveal who they are, where they live, or other personal details about them. The ruling comes as fears escalate over Trump's rhetoric inspiring new and even deadly acts of politically motivated violence. It remains an issue in Special Counsel Jack Smith's election interference case as well. Remember, earlier this month, Smith sought a narrow gag order to limit Trump's public statements about the case, contending that his disparaging— and inflammatory attacks have spurred threats against witnesses and threatened the court process. Today was Trump's deadline to respond to that gag order request from Jack Smith. Joining me now is Maya Wiley, president of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and a former assistant U.S. attorney. And Doug Jones, former U.S. senator from Alabama and a distinguished senior fellow with the Center for American Progress. Thank you both for being here. I'm going to start at the table with you, Maya. It says something that it is necessary to hide the identities of these jurors. I can remember in the E. Jean Carroll case, the judge in that case said, don't ever say who you are. Go home and just pretend like you were never in this courtroom because Donald Trump is a known threatener of individuals and he has known violent supporters.
6: Yes. And sadly, we know that from the grand jury proceeding in Fulton County, when grand jurors started feeling threatened because they were getting threats after their identities were revealed. So they already had direct knowledge and experience of the fact that they had to protect jurors from this process. And to your point, you know, we already know Donald Trump explicitly called out, remember, Shay Moss and Ruby Friedman, uh, two public servants who were simply counting ballots. And that false information led to them to have racist attacks and intimidation to have to call 911. We all heard their testimony in the January 6th proceeding about how that impacted their lives, how dramatically it impacted their lives. So there's nothing theoretical about it. uh, And there's nothing that even directly in Fulton County, regular ordinary citizens have encountered.
1: I mean, the thing is, Doug, you've done civil rights, you know, legendary civil rights prosecutions. And I mean, I just just reading the history of these, you know, it had to be terrifying to testify against members of the Klan in a state like Alabama or in a state like Mississippi, where Klansmen were murdering people, blowing up churches, etc. And if you're a witness in one of those cases, you know, just pointing out and pointing to a, a Klansman in the room could lead to death threats against you. You used to have to leave town sometimes. What do you make of the fact that Donald Trump is really, in a sense, no different than someone like that in terms of what he can inspire or like a mob boss, you know, the fear of testifying against a, a member of the mafia?
4: Yeah, you know, uh, Joey. What's ironic is I don't think Donald Trump has to say anything anymore, and still will incite people to do those things. I mean, there are people calling uh, members of Congress every day, threatening their lives, uh, talking about things. I don't think he has to say a word uh, at at this point. And, you know, this is not unusual. To be honest with you, it's not unusual to have an anonymous jury. We did an anonymous jury in 2001 and 2002 in the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing cases. Not because we thought the defendants were a threat, but white supremacists, Klansmen.
1: We are hoping that Zoom will let... Well, let our guest be great. I think I know where Doug Jones was going on this, you know, and we're going to try to get his uh, his Zoom fixed. But that's a great point, right? That the, and I think this is where he was going, is that it's not necessarily that the defendants would do it, but that there was a whole mentality among Klan supporters, which, by the way, weren't just, you know, the, the, the guy out in the field somewhere. It was lawyers and doctors and people who were with high political class who just sympathized with it. And that's what Donald Trump has. He has a cult and it doesn't reach just to the lower ends of the you know,
6: economic spectrum, it reaches way up high as well. Well, this goes back to your earlier segment on stochastic terrorism, right, which is this notion that uh, you have an, a sufficient belief system in society that itself is easily triggered. Right. And I think the sad thing here is that while I completely agree with Senator Jones's point that Donald Trump doesn't have to say anything, but he still does. But he's doing it. He's yeah. doing it all the time. Yeah. And it's why Jack Smith, in his own order, in his case that he's asking the judge to approve, is saying— don't not only to gag Donald Trump, but don't let him have surrogates. Don't let him have folks who are going out and speaking because they're in his camp, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether they're directly engaged in his camp or just allies who can be deployed to say the things that you might be able to gag him against saying. And this is the danger because, you know, it's not there's nothing theoretical about this point about what's in the ether. You know, and I, i you know, as we were talking about this, you know, it's the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington, and Rabbi came Prince, who American Jewish Congress on those steps, Holocaust survivors said and said this, and it was—it still rings in my ears. And today is, you know, a day of atonement, mm-hmm. uh, an important, high holy day for the Jewish community. But he said, as standing up there for Black civil rights, he said, you know, what he learned isn't the problem isn't hatred; it's silence, mm-hmm. and that that's what terrifies him. And I think that's the point. Our numbness to the fact that this is now prevalent Mm -hmm. and that we can get individual actors very simply and easily triggered into actually going, say, threatening to kill Joe Biden in Utah or, frankly... A judge. Yeah. Um, that Those are threats that are real. That
1: are very real. And we just uh, now got Doug Jones back. I want to let you finish your thought. We did just pass the 16th anniversary. Uh, uh, the, six, the, the 16th Street bombing anniversary actually just passed a, a week ago. But go ahead, please, Doug. Uh,
4: Senator Jones. We, we had anonymous jurors. I apologize for the Internet here. Uh, uh, we had anonymous jurors in that case. It was over 20 years ago and everything went well. The, the trial went off without a hitch. We,
1: Technology is a lie. <laughs> Technology is a lie. But they, you know, we, with the Internet, it never it always fails you when you really need it. Um, can we do it one more time? Should we try it again? Can we get him back? Yeah. Ah, well, you know, Wi-Fi is just the, it's the scourge. It is the scourge of our existence. You need it. And yet it fails so often, so often. But we, we kind of, we got what you were saying. Uh, Senator Doug Jones, he is one of the greats. Uh, Alabama, you made a huge mistake there. Huge mistake. Cause now you have a guy who's blocking military promotions. Well done, Alabama. Maya Wiley, former Senator Doug Jones. Thank you. Coming up, as Rupert Murdoch retires from Fox after damaging American democracy in more ways than we can even count, author Michael Wolf joins me to talk about his new book, The Fall, The End of Fox News and the Murdoch Dynasty. Sounds juicy. Stay right there.
3: There is no individual alive that has done more to divide America than Rupert Murdoch.
1: That was former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull back in April pulling no punches about 92-year-old Rupert Murdoch, the most destructive person not just to America, but in much of the world for decades, thanks to his massive global media empire, which spews fascism, misogyny and outright lies directly into the veins of right-wing audiences in Australia, in Europe and right here in the United States. His American crown jewel has been Fox, with its power to mold the brains of millions of people, and with them, the American political landscape, with a steady diet of propaganda. Last week, Murdoch announced that he'd be stepping down from the boards of Fox and News Corp, leaving his son Lachlan the sole executive in charge of his empire. But as Murdoch departs, his legacy of destruction is especially clear at Fox, where there is no form of hate that they have failed to monetize over the last three decades. Relentless Islamophobia after September 11, a platform for the racist Barack Obama birther conspiracy, COVID denial, and of course, the big lie, which undermined our democracy. Donald Trump's lies about the 2020 election resulted in Fox paying Dominion voting system $787 million dollars. Well, a new book gives us insights into the months leading up to that massive settlement, including how it led to the firing of Tucker Carlson. The book digs into Rupert Murdoch's empire and his enabling of the monster that he cannot control, Donald Trump. And joining me now is Michael Wolff, author of The Fall, The End of Fox News and the Murdoch Dynasty. What a delicious, intriguing title, because no one ever believes this is ever going to end. That explain the title just to start off with. Do you really think that this is an empire that can come to an end?
3: Uh, in the short term, and in fact, I mean, last week when when uh, Rupert Murdoch stepped down, um, that was uh, my, it's not even the first shoe. It is just along the way of what's happening here, and I mean for for actually many reasons, but let's go to the most glaring one. Uh, this is a company that rests on the shoulders of one man and one man alone. He is the decision maker, all of the decisions. Uh, and he's 92 years old. Yeah. Um, and uh, without him, And that will shortly come to pass. Um, Then technically, the company passes to control of his four children, Um, uh, some who are not speaking to him, others who are not speaking to to others of their siblings. Um, um, A group that can't possibly agree on the direction of this company. Yeah. Um, So in that event, what happens? Um, um, well, um, probably the company, the company gets sold. It transitions into something else. But the point is, it can't last.
1: It's, it's, it is succession in real life, and you say you admit that in the book. You're like, yes, it's real life succession. But you know, you are perhaps the most prolific um, biographer of Rupert Murdoch. You, you, you point out you've known him for a very long time. Yeah, no, no, He's let I, you in. I,
3: yes, I mean, I've I spent a, a literal a year with him. Yeah, him, his executives, his family. Uh, I, have I've met his mother. Yeah. Um
1: and rode around with her in a golf cart, which is a great story. But then, then I will ask you, I think you are uniquely uh, in a position to answer this question. What does he want? Because it, it seems from the outside looking in that what he wants is to destroy democracy, um, to wreck American democracy specifically, and to use Fox as a vehicle for very specific political desires, Republican outcomes that he wants and win elections. Yeah. What does he
3: want? Okay, that's not what he wants. As a matter of fact, in, in part of the the... The irony here, a kind of, for Rupert Murdoch, a cruel irony, is that he was never very interested in Fox. Um, you know, Rupert is a newspaper man. That's what, that's what he does. That's where his attention is. He funded, He funded um, uh, the creation of Fox in 1996, actually actually sort of as an act of revenge. He tried to buy CNN. They wouldn't sell it to him. So he said, I'll I'll build my own. Um, But he's not a television guy, not interested in television, doesn't watch television. So he hired a man named Roger Ailes. And Roger Ailes created Fox, built Fox, led Fox for most of its... um, um, uh, um, for 25 years, yeah, um, and it was Ailes who created this, and Ailes was was thrown out in 2016 because of because of, 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 of a range of sexual harassment charges, sure. and suddenly Rupert kind of found himself in charge. Yeah. Um, and couldn't control this. And yeah. you know, another another kind of kind of um, you know, I mean, irony beyond proportion is that Fox elects. Donald Trump president Absolutely. I mean there there is no there is no Trump presidency without Fox. without without Fox but Rupert Murdoch hates Donald Trump <laughs> detests him you know wishes him literally wishes him dead yeah um, and so so here he is in the last years of his life looking face to face with with this this reality um, and this legacy so not that he doesn't Deserve the tragedy, but it is kind of a tragedy. yeah. I mean, he buying The Wall Street Journal was sort of his
1: peak moment, right? He thought he's a newspaper guy. that's what he really wanted. But in the end, as you said, he created this monster.
3: Well, but they he can't cer- control he cer- it. He certainly let it let it go. Yeah. And the reason he let it go, and let's not mince our words, money. It made an enormous amount of That's money. It. That's it. Mo- probably more money than any news operation has ever made. Absolutely. So between that, if you had to say yeah. Trump or the money, Rupert takes the money. He takes the money. Uh, closing question, Lachlan Murdoch.
1: How do things change with him on board? Because it sounds from what you started off saying, he can't drive this ship the same way that his father did.
3: No. And in fact, it's not clear that he is any more in charge than he has, has ever been. Rupert holds the power. He holds the power of the board. He holds the power to appoint the, uh, the CEO. And, and he's, a, he's a meddlesome guy. <laughs> so I would suspect poor Lachlan is in the same old position. He's always been under his father's thumb.
1: Michael Wolf, this is a fascinating book. Uh, this is, it, it's not summer, but it's like a summer read because it's like really fascinating. Uh, and your books are always like that. Thank you for coming down. Thanks. Um, appreciate you. Okay, coming up, New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez remains defiant as calls for his resignation grow louder and louder after he was indicted on corruption charges related to the stacks of cash and gold bars found in his home. You got to love that. Congressman Andy Kim is vowing to run against Menendez, and he joins me next.
2: I recognize uh, this will be the biggest fight uh, yet, but as I have stated throughout this whole process, I firmly believe that when all the facts are presented, not only will I be exonerated, but I still will be the New Jersey's senior senator.
1: New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez maintaining his innocence today in his first public appearance since being indicted on federal corruption and bribery charges, saying he is not resigning, even as a growing number of Democrats are calling on him to do so. Since the indictment was unsealed on Friday, several prominent New Jersey officials, members of Congress, and at least two senators from his own party have said Menendez should, in fact, step down, while one Republican congressman is actually speaking out in his defense.
5: Do you think Senator Menendez should resign, given his indictment? I don't have
3: an opinion on that. Why not? Because they think uh, due process uh, is important, and I think he has the right to defend himself. He's innocent until proven guilty. When did we walk away from the fabric of our Constitution that everybody has a presumption of innocence before anything else? So I don't, I don't think he should resign.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. If George Anthony Devalder Kitara Rivas Santos is the only one defending you, it is probably not the best sign. Nevertheless, Menendez is now also facing a Democratic challenger in next year's primary. Congressman Andy Kim, who announced his bid for Senate over the weekend. Writing on the social media platform, formerly known as Twitter, that this was not something he expected to do. But New Jersey deserves better. We cannot jeopardize the Senate or compromise our integrity, unquote. Joining me now is the aforementioned Democratic Congressman Andy Kim of New Jersey. And Congressman, thank you for being here. Of course. I think people more, know you more, mostly from after uh, the January 6th insurrection. You were one of the guys that was out there cleaning up. I think we have a picture of that, that you were out there trying to help, you know, those those workers there. Um they were forced to clean up the mess left by MAGA supporters. Um, so you are back now running against Menendez. It's an obvious question. Why? But what do you make of the fact that he is defiantly refusing to step aside
0: Well, I I think that that's something that we've just seen from it. You know, if you back someone into a corner when they realize that they don't have anything else to to stand on, you know, they just really kind of dig in. And we've seen that from him before. But that's look, that's exactly why I'm stepping up here. You know, this is something that actually honestly reminds me of six years ago when I first decided to run for Congress. You know, I'm I'm somebody that used to be in diplomacy. I was a career government official. I never thought about running for office, running for Congress. But. I was so concerned at that time just about what, you know, the Trump administration was doing about the healthcare repeal bill and my own congressman that was, you know, that was leading the charge on that on gutting pre-existing condition protections. I actually started that campaign on a tweet that I yeah. just sent out, on, you know, on my own. I think I only had like six followers at the time. Yeah. But um, this is one of those moments. You know, this is one of those moments where you have to decide what you're going to do. And we see what Senator Menendez is going to do. He said, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. And I feel this, this conviction right now. I feel compelled to stand up and and push that out there. So look, I hope other people feel the same way. And if they do, uh, you know, I hope they go to AndyKim.com, learn more, and try to support this effort to be able to hold him accountable. For this.
1: Have you heard from the, the Democratic Senate Congressional Committee, the DSCC?
0: No, I haven't had the chance at this point to talk to talk to them. But you know, I have talked to with a lot of people across New Jersey, sure. uh, both uh, you know leaders as well as across the nation. Yeah, and they're just everyone. Everyone's just like this is. Crazy. I mean, gold bars, Come on. money s- shoved into pockets. I mean, this is not I mean, you know, this is not even your average thing. I mean, the American people, honestly, they sometimes it feels like they've gone numb to sure. some of these this level of corruption.
1: But this is a whole nother level. Well, I mean, and, and I think that is an important point because, you know, Democrats, you um there is a there is a taste level and a standards level of what Democratic voters demand. Right, De- Democratic voters can be very exacting and wanting a certain amount of moral rectitude. Whereas Republican voters, unfortunately, in many cases, they'll take Trump who's hiding the classified documents in the in the in the shower. They're fine with it. But Democratic voters generally are a little more choosy. Um, have you? Do you think that it is important to replace Mr. Menendez as he goes through his And He's innocent until proven guilty. He has a chance. But this is his second corruption trial. He just completed one. He got out with a hung jury. Now he's back with another case. Is this in part about the fact that you have Donald Trump, who is a multiple times indicted, 92 count potential felon running for president and Democrats needing to present a different image to the country? Yeah, no, that's
0: exactly right. I mean, look. When I first ran, no one thought I could win my district because it was a district that Trump won. Right. You know, Trump won my district in 16 and in 2020, mm-hmm. uh, but I was able to prevail. You know, I won, even in 2020, when Trump was on the ballot with me, he won, but I won. And what I learned from that process is that right now we live in the time of the greatest amount of distrust in government in modern history. You know, people are just so sick and tired, and I've often been saying this line that The opposite of democracy is apathy. You know, like if democracy is engagement, apathy is the withdrawal. That's what we have to guard against. And what I heard from people over the course of the last few days, people are just like, oh. Yeah. Like losing that faith, losing that trust. So we have to do this. And also, look, I mean, there's another very practical reason, which is, you know, the Senate majority is razor thin. Yeah. And if Senator Menendez is the nominee for the Democratic Party, The Democrats are going to lose this seat in the Senate. I mean, just like based off of what we've seen. So it's just so important that. We hold on. This should not be in play. This yeah. is not. So we have enough to worry about when it comes to the Senate in 2024.
1: Are you having the conversations about the potential ramifications of that? Because I think that Democrats don't talk about this enough. I mean, a Republican-controlled Senate probably means a national abortion ban. Lindsey Graham of South Carolina has promised that's coming. You've got Mike Pence vowing to make that happen. You've got uh, Tim Scott all saying, "Yeah, we're going to do a national abortion ban." Yeah. You can you can imagine no reform to the Supreme Court. You could go on and on. Are there specific issues that? You are talking about beyond the potential corruption of Mr. Menendez that you think are important that the Senate needs to um, remain in Democratic hands.
0: Yeah, look, I mean, absolutely. I mean, like I said, you know, I started to run for office because of the effort to gut health care in this country. Yeah, and the pre-existing condition ban. I mean, and you know, I have two kids. I got a six-year-old, and an eight-year-old, and I just think about it in terms of this question of just like what kind of America are my kids going to grow yeah. up in? Yeah. You know, this is just very personal. As I said, I'm am not a politician. This is not something I ever dreamed of doing. Yeah. I'm a dad worried about the future of my kids and their yeah. generation. And this is one of those defining moments. And the idea that, again, this is my own senator. You know, I am his constituent. I am worried about my own family. Yeah. And uh, you know, we see that this—this this can't stand. So yes, you're right. Healthcare abortion ban, uh, you know, climate change issues, the yeah. progress we tried to make on that front. Yeah. You know, these are the things that are
1: very much at stake right now. Absolutely. Uh, well, best of luck. Congressman Andy Kim, please come back uh, and give us some updates on the progress of Thank your you. campaign. Thank you. Uh, and up next, disturbing developments in the incarceration of Russian opposition leader and friend of this show, Vladimir Kara Mirza. Stay with us. We want to shine a light on what's happening in Russia involving a friend of this show, jailed opposition politician Vladimir Kara-Murza. He is serving a 25 year prison sentence for speaking out against Vladimir Putin and his invasion of Ukraine. Kara-Murza was convicted of treason in April. Attorneys say that he's now been transported to a maximum security prison in Siberia, where upon arrival, Kara-Murza was immediately placed in a, quote, punishment cell a tiny concrete cell where prisoners are held in isolation. His attorney called the move worrying because of Kara Merz's deteriorating health. A tragic development for a fighter for human rights and democracy. And we will continue to monitor this situation. And that is tonight's readout. But don't go anywhere. It is a big night for MSNBC. Up next, Jen Psaki speaks one on one with Speaker Emerita Nancy Pelosi during the primetime debut of Inside with Jen Psaki, which you can now watch every Monday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, in addition to Sundays at noon. Then stay tuned for the Rachel Maddow show at 9 p.m. Eastern tonight. Rachel Maddow sits down with former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson for her first live interview since serving as a key witness in the January 6th hearings. You do not want to miss it. I know you won't